You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. Another world. Another time. In the age of wonder. There was once a dream. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. A battle between good and evil. You don't know the power of the dark side. Where shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? Try the local sewer. You know of the rebellion against the Empire? The Avengers, Earth's mightiest heroes. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. One of these days, I'm going to have a stick of my own. I'm Groot. Welcome to the Neverland Podcast. The podcast for lovers of Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Please welcome your host, Jeremy. I thought he'd be taller. Yeah, I can fly. All it takes is faith and trust. Well, if it isn't the Star Spangled Man with a plan, what is your plan today? Up to Neverland! Take your pixie out of your pockets, Neverlanders. Sprinkle some of that pixie dust around, grab that happiest thought, and fly away with me, your spider pan, head lost boy, Jeremy, here at the Neverland Podcast as we're heading off to Neverland again with a lot of great fun with author, animator, storyboard artist, W.R. Miller. Yeah, I know, we just talked to him uh, just a few weeks ago, but he's got another book that just came out and I didn't even know everything that this book was about, so I had a great time talking to him about this book. Also, he got a chance to attend a press event for Star Wars Resistance. Also, he's gotten to meet Gary Kurtz, and I wanted to give a little time to talking about Gary Kurtz now that he has recently passed away from cancer. Uh, We also have a lot of interesting news and some new trailers that came out this week, so I definitely want to talk about those. Unfortunately, Lost Boy Eric isn't able to join me at the moment. He is a very busy guy, and so am I, and we're having a hard time getting our schedules to fit together here lately. But I want to make sure you're following us on social media. We're having a lot of fun posting up new things. I'm actually in the middle of a project now on social media where I have to make sure I'm posting something every day. I'm following a lot of new people. We're having some fun on Instagram even. We're having a Mickey quest. There's so much fun. In fact, I have two new blog posts that I wrote this week on the Neverland Podcast website. If you click on the news link, you can go and read a couple of those posts. And I have more posts coming. So lots of things are happening around here. Lots of fun to be had. And I want to go through and talk about a little bit of the news and also some of your reactions to the news. Spanning the Disney and Geek Universe to bring you the best in comics, toys, movies, and entertainment. This is news from around Neverland. This is kind of interesting. This comes from ABC 10 News. Uh, Also, it was reported in the Orange County Register that in Disneyland Anaheim, they're actually removing some of the benches in order to try to fix some of the overcrowding issues that they've had uh, as Galaxy's Edge is set to open in 2019. And officials are saying that the removed seating is actually going to be replaced in dining locations around the park. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. 
means that that means that they're moving the seating into dining locations, so maybe more seating will be available in the dining, but won't be available in other parts of the park. I'm a little confused by that, uh, but we did have some comments. We even have one from Aaron Sparrow, who's been writing Darkwing Duck comics. He asked, isn't this kind of declaring war on the elderly and the handicapped? And he kind of makes a pretty good point there, because if you're a little older, you might need to find a bench, uh, and now that there's less, you might have a harder time finding one, so that could be an accidental condition uh, that you cause from this. Uh, we did have an interesting conversation with Tim Nidell of Saturday Morning Rewind. He said, well, this is interesting. I go to Disneyland all the time, and I've never thought to myself, hmm, they should take out a few benches they have to make room for more people. I don't see how this is going to help. They don't have many benches as it is, and it's not likely they're just in the middle of walkways. And I did mention that they are trying to get uh, some of the annual pass holders are kind of clogging up the area around Main Street from what I understand that, you know, they've, they've thrown their little fan clubs and groups and they kind of like to just hang out in Disneyland and they're not necessarily doing anything. Uh, and so I did inform him that they've had that sort of a problem. Uh, and Tim responds, well, honestly, the local pass holders are the reason why it's so busy. But I know they tried to fix this problem by raising the prices and having blackout dates, but it's still a problem. And I don't mean to call it a problem because they have every right to be there. I'd be a pass holder if I were local, but they do fill up the park on a regular basis. And he really has put his finger on exactly the problem that they've been having. Lost Boy Eric was able to chime in on this, so we do get to hear from this week. He says, I'm aware of two areas where seating and planters have been removed, in front of the Haunted Mansion and in the Tomorrowland Breezeway between Buzz and Star Tours. I've seen benches in place of the Mansion Planter and the Tomorrowland area has always been a bottleneck there. The removal of the Adventureland Planter and turning the Indiana Jones Outpost into seating for the Bengal Barbecue seemed to open up some space... Hopefully this is going to fix a few things, make things a little better. But yeah, I, I can wonder about people who need to be, be able to take a break and just sit on a bench might have a harder time finding them. But maybe that's what they're talking about with you know putting something in the dining area. Maybe all the seating area, they're going to increase the dining area sitting. So maybe you can go and just sit in the dining area, although they would probably prefer you to order something to eat. Here's something, though, from The Hollywood Reporter that has surprised quite a few people. Kathleen Kennedy has actually signed a new three-year extended deal to head up Lucasfilm. Uh, and it's actually, there's a vote of confidence uh, that actually, it's, you know, it's a $4 billion acquisition, but she's got a vote of confidence, and she also has to, she's had to replace some directors. I mean, she's had a lot of work in there, but like I said, vote of confidence. Despite what a lot of fans are saying, some fans are like, oh no, she's doing fine, and other fans have been a little disappointed with what she's been doing, but she is in another three years. Uh, now, we did have a little bit of reaction, you know, of some sad faces about this story. Uh, one rather comical reaction of somebody who was kind of happy from Miguel. He put the emperor up there going, good, <laughs> which is, I thought was rather funny. But of course, there is some more emotional other things than, uh, well, good things happening. I did find an article on Toy Story 4 because Tim Allen was on a CBS television show called The Talk. And he says about Toy Story 4, and here's the quote, Yes, I gotta resist getting emotional. I don't want to give it away, but this is an incredibly great story. It is so emotional. It's so funny. It's so big. 
The idea that they've come up with, I'm startled. I couldn't even get through the last scene. I would love to be a Washington leaker. I just can't do it. I can't give any more away. So we can't say anything about it, but we do know Toy Story 4 is centered around Woody and Buzz looking for Bo Peep because she was notably not in Toy Story 3, and that's a good idea to tell us what happened to that character. We did enjoy that character. Uh, so, you know, going that direction and knowing now there's going to have a great emotional impact makes me a little nervous, but I'm, I'm probably going to enjoy the film, but I hope because she was a porcelain doll, uh, if they find out at the end that she was broken, <laughs> uh, <laughs> they wouldn't do that to us, would they? They wouldn't. I hope. Taking a look at the parks on anything new happening, November 9th will be the beginning of the holidays at Disneyland Resort, and they did list out a few things that you can expect to find, and of course... A lot of it is what we expect. We see that rather often. But, of course, the Christmas Fantasy Parade is going to be at Disneyland Park. The Festive Food Marketplaces at Disney's California Adventure Park. And, of course, Believe in Holiday Magic Fireworks at Disneyland Park coming back. Plus, the Dis Disney Viva Navidad Street Party at Disney California Adventure Park. And, of course, all of the decor going along you know, of course, around Sleeping Booty's Winter Castle. You know, it's a lot of the things that you come to expect, but it's nice to know, November 9th, it'll all be there, so as soon as Halloween's ready and over and done, prepare to see some Christmas decorations. And some of you may be saying, already? <laughs> but, you know, those Halloween decorations came in there in August, so <laughs> I think everything moves really quick in there. But uh, let's take a quick visit over to the trailer park. Mama, now the gator got in the house. Now the gator? Give me that sugar. Come here. Get him, Mama. Get that gator. The Neverland Trailer Park. Way to go, kid. One second, I'm having the time of my life. The next thing I know, my game is just... Kid! Gone. Oh no, I'm freaking out hard. If I'm not a racer, what am I? Oh, you're my best friend. All we gotta do is find a part to fix your game. Everything goes back to the way it was. But where are we gonna find that? The internet! What? Housewives want to meet you. They do. Want to get rich playing video games? Slaughter race. It's wicked dangerous. Oh, yep, I'm out of that car. It was the one, but it was an old. Oh, nice kitty. Nice kitty. Attention to detail is pretty impressive. Well, well, well. Who are you? I think we should get out of here. Whoa. Showtime. Let's race. So many babies and cats in the world. Ha, that is what the internet was made for. It's full of weirdos. I want this to be my life. I don't think I could ever tell Ralph. There's no law saying best friends have to have the same dreams. Ah. Hello, baby. 
what's called the dark net. Are you sure this is safe? Just whatever you do, do not look at his little brother. Oh, his little brother? <laughs> what are you doing here? <clears throat> the reason I came to your neck of the face. I mean, there's a face in your neck. I mean, woods. Neck of the woods. All right, here's one that I forgot to talk about a couple of weeks ago when this came out, but Wreck-It Ralph 2, uh, and I think maybe, you know, I, I remember talking about this to somebody, and I hope I didn't already be talking about it with you, but I'm this actually got me excited. Now that I got a little bit more story, finding out that Sugar Rush was broken. And so the Sugar Rush characters are in danger with an unplug. So going on the internet, Ralph and Penelope are actually, or Vanellope, sorry, uh, they're actually looking for a way to order a replacement part for the steering wheel that was broken on Sugar Rush to try to save all of those characters. So that is your main plot line. And then, of course, we've gotten to see that Vanellope is going to find a different racing game and become excited about that. So there might be a uh, interesting emotional storyline of her deciding whether or not she should come back to Sugar Rush or just go this other racing game, which is looks very extreme. Not exactly sure what we have for a villain in this, but this does actually look very interesting, and I'm glad to see a little bit more than just gimmicky type of things that we were seeing so far to a little bit more of some story that I would be definitely interested in. So I'm, I'm very much anticipating what's coming up in this film. Address. What's that? A safe house in Paris. Why would I need a safe house in Paris? Should things at some point go terribly wrong, it's good to have a place to go. You know, for a cup of tea. My brothers. My sisters. The clock is ticking faster. My dream. We who live for truth, for love. The moment has come to take our rightful place in the world where we wizards were free. Join me. Or die. The wizarding and non-wizarding worlds have been at peace for over a century. Grindelwald wants to see that peace destroyed. You want me to hunt him down? To kill him? Dumbledore, why can't you go? I cannot move against Grindelwald. It has to be you. You don't suffer from motion sickness, see? I don't do well on boats. You'll be fine. <laughs> Do you know why I admire you, Nick? You do not seek power. You simply ask, is the thing right? The time's coming when you're going to have to pick a side. No, I don't do sides. What are you going to do? I think it's something. Mute, you never met a monster you couldn't love. Let's take him. That's your brother? I think that might have been the best moment of my life. Okay, so this, actually, amazingly enough, has been a little controversial. 
the the crimes of Grindelwald. Now, I didn't think much of it. I, th- I was kind of surprised if we found out that Nagini is a woman who turns into a snake. So there's some a lot of storyline that uh, we don't really know. And apparently this has sparked a little bit of controversy. Some people have complained that this wasn't really established in the previous books. And it seems to be a maneuver like, well, you know, we appreciate you're trying to be more diverse, but it seems like you stuck it in there, which J.K. Rowling has defended. And actually the idea, I guess, of Nagini, she says she's had it uh, for 20 years and that even the name Nagini had to do with uh, something from that area of the world around Korea, uh, because we have a Korean actress playing the role. Uh, But it has to do with something called a Nagi. And I can't remember everything she said but it is like a serpent style and dragon lady type of uh, character thing so uh, it looks like she's pulling from that and you know I want to give her the benefit of the doubt but it seems no matter what you do when you have something that becomes big somebody's going to find a way to complain about a hello Star Wars there, you, it's really difficult to please your fan base when you get a really large fan base and so people are already coming against and attacking but you know I'm going to give it a chance and watch this movie I think this is intriguing I'm I'm wanting to know what the actual story behind Nagini really is now that we know that there's a woman I mean is she an animagus or something like that or is she something different entirely to become a horcrux herself did voldemort know this was a woman i don't know so i mean there's there's so many new questions in here i'm very excited for this film and of course the crimes of glut grindelwald we're going to see fantastic beast 2 very very soon i'm charlie watson i'm 18 today actually is the beetle for sale? Cures, kid. Happy birthday. about things they don't understand. From now on, the only person you can show yourself around is me. Oh, I'm, I'm good. Now I'm good, thanks. There's a war raging on our planet. If this criminal isn't found, that war may find its way here. Is there anyone that can help you? you have a family? Oh, who would be? They're calling an army. I've seen firsthand these things really are. Bumblebee, there is only one way to end this war. You must protect Earth and its people. Take it down! My back, me! We stopped them. You've got me. And I'm not going anywhere. Go. 
Here's a film that it took me this long to actually get a little bit excited about. Bumblebee. The prequel, I guess, if not a flat-out reboot of the Transformers film franchise. And this has a lot more nods to the Generation 1 Transformers that I grew up with. But from the look of it, it I don't know how much Generation 1 characters we're going to get to come across. It seems like we're going to see a lot of things happening on Cybertron. But it seems the majority of the story, of course, is... Uh, sort of girl meets alien, you know, a, a story we've seen before on Earth, and we're going to have what well, could be a fun and cute story. And so I, I do anticipate that I'm, I'm going to go ahead to this one. I keep I get disappointed from Transformers movies. Sometimes they do things, and I'm like, oh, hey, maybe this is going to actually be good. And then I go on, I'm disappointed, and so I've quit. But another thing that got me kind of into this is I, uh, with part of working with Uber, I do some Uber Eats over at McDonald's. And have you seen these Happy Meal toys? They have little toys that look like Generation 1 Transformers. I mean, they're small and they're little plastic things, but even Megatron has a classic Megatron head on it. And some of the, I mean, seeing Sound, uh, Starscream and Soundwave and other characters, as they looked in Generation 1, even Optimus Prime looks Generation 1. I, it's it's really giving me some hope that something good's going to happen. But just because they look the right way doesn't mean the story is good. So I'm trying not to get my hopes up too much. But wow, <laughs> that that didn't suddenly get my interest. But it's time for us to move on. And so let's welcome our guest here on the Neverland Podcast. To Disney and beyond. Oh! All right, we are now back again with author W.R. Miller, and I'm telling you, author is not quite near enough because he's written a lot of things. You've written for Starlog. We talked to you before about some of your Star Wars books, like the Star Wars Historical Source book, which is the first volume in a series, and all these other projects you're working on, a Batman interview book, and all kinds of stuff. And we've got two reasons, of course, for it. Well, actually, three reasons now that I've been talking to you. But uh, we got lots of reasons to come and talk to you some more. One of which is that you've just recently released a book about all of your work in animation. So, everybody, welcome back, Mr. W.R., also known as Bob Miller. Hello. Hello, and thank you very much. So, you were telling us a little bit last time that you had worked on Garfield and Friends. Yes, that's right. Uh, I was uh, hired by John Colley, the line producer. And, um, Mark Evanier was also uh, a factor in getting me on board. It was the first time I was involved with uh, design and uh, storyboard work. Oh, man. So that's really cool. So uh, you did a little bit of the uh, in-between animation, I think you had said, didn't you? Well, that was at Sullivan Blue. That was my previous job. Oh, my goodness. So I forgot to even... I got to back up even further because I think you had mentioned, like, uh, is it Beanie and Cecil? Am I getting that name right? Yes, that's or, right. Uh, it was it was a, a revival of Beanie and Cecil, and um, John Chris Felucci hired me for that. And my only familiarity, really, with Beanie and Cecil is I know voice actress Katie Lee really enjoyed the original run of Beanie and Cecil, but I don't know anything about those characters. Well, there is a um, a DVD available, um, but that was for the puppet show, the live action puppet show. But there is also a uh, an animated version, one episode in which is on that DVD. Oh, cool! But there was a, an animated version. Well, see, the original was called Time for Beanie, and that was in the early fifties. It was just a regular puppet show, and it had um, it had Dawes Butler involved, 
You know who Dawes Butler is? Yes. Uh, if nothing else, you got to remember him for like Yogi Bear. And I think, wasn't he also a Huckleberry Hound? I mean, he's just a ton of characters. Yeah, yeah. And he did the voice of Beanie. Oh, cool. A little boy who befriended a sea serpent by the name of Cecil. And Cecil was voiced by Stan Freeberg. Oh, my goodness. See, there there you go. <laughs> Stan Freeberg, Dawes Butler. I got to look this up. Yep. So is, is that part of what's on the DVD then? Is the, the original show with them, too? That's correct. Not every single episode, but, um, you know, a good sampling of them. And, okay. <laughs> and then uh, Bob Clampett, the creator, uh, did an animated version in the early 60s. Oh, neat. And that list lasted a little bit. And then John Chris Lucy, who was a big fan of Bob Clampett, um, petition, you know, got a new version. And that was um, when I came on board, the new version for, for Deke, uh, the new version, uh, got he got uh, Paul Dini involved in becoming the story editor, replacing another story editor whose name I will not mention. But um, <laughs> okay. Paul Dini uh, became the head writer and story editor of the new series. You know who Paul Dini is. Oh, yes, and he's going to be a big part of your upcoming Batman book then. Yes, I <laughs> absolutely. I interviewed Paul um, for Starlog Magazine several times, actually for Comic Scene, but uh, which is a sister publication to Starlog. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I was there at the time they were gearing up for the uh, Batman the Animated Series. And, yes, I admit, I <laughs> well, my history Paul, of Paul, with Paul Dini goes further than back than that i had interviewed him on the ewoks droids tv show oh cool for uh, you know for starlog and comic scene and then later um i interviewed him for beanie and cecil not knowing that i would actually be hired on beanie and cecil <laughs> yeah it's just one of those things and then yeah and then later on uh he um i interviewed him on uh, batman the animated series for comic scene as a writer, oh, wow. writer for that and uh, Starlog, um, he's a brilliant writer. Um, he he manages to take what I would consider to be lame characters and make them very appealing um, on the shows that he writes for. Uh, you know, I I interviewed him for Tiny Toons, and I think I did it for Animaniacs, and then of course I interviewed him several times for uh, Batman the Animated Series. So all the articles that I wrote about Batman the Animated Series, I'm compiling in one volume, and then I'm updating it a little bit with uh, fresher interviews. Awesome. Are some of these earlier Paul Dini interviews with about Animaniacs and Tiny Toons, are they in this, this newer this book that just came out? In the book that came out? No. That's called The Animated Voice. Ah. That's, uh, that book is about voice actors. So. Oh, yeah, so you get to find out uh, the careers and uh, the craft of the people that I interviewed for that book. For, oh, wow. So it starts out with an interview with uh, Pete Doctor. Do you know who that is? Oh, yes, cause, mainly because I absolutely love Monsters Incorporated. So, <laughs> Well, he talks about what he looks for in a performer. You know, how wow, he, neat. How he selects and how he directs people and... You know, talks about the proper attitude and, you know, some behind-the-scenes stuff. What inspires him? Um, in fact, they all talk about what 
their inspirations are. So he starts off the book. Well, actually, I start off with, with my visits to um, recording sessions. Then Pete Doctor follows me, and then Mark Evanier follows, and he, you know who Mark is. I know I've heard the name, but I, I can't think of anything that he's done. Mark Evanier is a brilliant writer. He, um, he's written, uh, well, I guess he's best known, well, he did some work on some several live-action shows, including um, That's Incredible. Oh, wow. But, uh, I actually remember that show. <laughs> but in comic books, he's um, responsible with Sergio Aragonis with uh, Grew the Wanderer. Oh, neat! Yeah. And um, he's also written uh, DN Agents. So, um, yeah. But Dan, and, you know, Dan Spiegel illustrated that. But uh, more toward mainstream, his bigger claim to fame would be Garfield and Friends, which is the animated series in the 80s, and the Garfield show, which is the CG version, uh, mm -hmm. which was, um, in, you know, I think several years ago. So, um, yeah, so I, he, as a, he actually voice directs the material he writes. He does kind of double duty, and he knows the actors that he hires. He knows how to bring the best out of them. So uh, he talks about the, the best way one can um, perform and why he chooses the ones he chooses and you know the best behavior they specs out of the actors. So you get his insights. And then the rest of the book deals with uh, uh, voiceover specialists. And um, I've got one from Australia. His name is Keith Scott. Does that ring a bell? No, actually, it doesn't. No, Keith was the voice of Bullwinkle. <gasps> oh, wow. After Bill Scott passed away, he became the official voice of Bullwinkle, and um, he did uh, Boris Badenoff and several others. Oh, my goodness. Now, he's not in the new series, um, but he was you know, involved with um, Bullwinkle and others in the, um, in the Bull Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. Boy, he was filling some really big shoes with that. <laughs> yeah, very capable. But yeah, he specializes in voices. Uh, well, most of his stuff is done uh, in Australia. Huh. So uh, you get his perspective. Um, he wrote a book called The Moose That Roared. <laughs> so that's, that's a historical look at uh, the Jay Ward Studios. Really? Oh, that is neat. Yeah. So I interviewed him for uh, the um, the animated voice. I also have Will Ryan. Yay! You know who that is. <laughs> oh, indeed, because I'm a huge Adventures and Odyssey fan. So mainly, of course, that. But, of course, Disney fans will know him mainly, I think, from Mickey's Christmas Carol, for being Pete in there. I, I love his version of, of Pete, even though I do love Jim Cummings as Pete. But Will Ryan sounds more like that classic style, so I really love him. Uh, also, he had a role in The Little Mermaid as the uh, little, uh, I think it was a little shrimp announcer. Just lots of things. Will Ryan is just so much fun. He is. Super talented. Yes. Yeah, he, that was, he was a seahorse in that one. Yeah. And then, of course, is Eugene in Adventures in Odyssey. Oh, yes. So I love that show. He's still <laughs> with it. So he uh, talks about his career in the book. Uh, Katie Lee. Is, Yay! Love her, of course. Of course. Yeah, you know, plays Connie in Adventures in Odyssey, but... She did uh, Baby Rolf and the Muppet Babies. Yeah, we actually got... She was my very first interview ever on the podcast. She's so much fun. She's so nice. 
Oh, very much so. And uh, she did also did uh, Sunny Gummy from the Gummy Bears. Yep. Uh, yeah, she's got a lot. She even at one point was Richie Rich and so many different characters. And then even uh, on Dumbo Circus, she's only the only person to ever have voiced Dumbo. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And I, um, I had worked on Courage the Cowardly Dog uh, for the first season as the um, storyboard um, uh, supervisor. And while I was there, I um, took advantage of the opportunity to interview the star of the show, which was Marty Grabstein, who was, you know, the voice of Courage. So I I interviewed him, and I also interviewed uh, Arnold Stang, who did the sweet, adorable little duckling in that show. But everybody, probably more well-known as the voice of Top Cat. Oh, neat. He did Shorty in the the Popeye series, the Fleischer Popeye series. Shorty, I don't know if I remember Shorty. Um, he he was in about three shorts, theatrical shorts, and that was it. He was basically a pest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the Fleischer Popeye cartoons were the best ones, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But uh, but he will be in a, a future volume of the anime, animated voice. This is like three. At least three volumes. So oh, cool. Have him in a later one. Uh, Phil Lawler's in it. Um, you know, you, do you know who Phil is? Yes, I actually talked to him on Facebook. I need to have him on the podcast sometime, too, because he's actually done a little bit of voice work himself. He's done everything. Writer, producer, mm-hmm. creator, co-creator of Adventures in Odyssey, and he's, um, and he's responsible for the Iliad House. That's his own project. Mm-hmm. I still haven't gotten to listen to that one. I needed to. I need to buy it. But uh, yeah, I, I grouped a, a lot of these people who have connections with each other. So he and Katie and uh, Will, you know, they're all together mm-hmm. um, in this. And then Will interviewed Dallas McKinnon for a Seat for Hollywood, and I've got that interview in this book as well. Oh, cool. So that's what we have. And then David, David McDonald's Starlog provided the foreword. Oh, man. So you're like reaching way back to like the Starlog days for all kinds of material. Well, David actually was one of the first to give me a shot at uh, as a writer, as a professional oh. writer. So um, he, you know, my first job for him was interviewing Paul Dini on Ewoks and Droids. <laughs> it started Did you, had you had any ambition to do any of the storyboard art or anything like that at the time that you were working to become a writer no that didn't even enter my mind um, <laughs> I was hired and trained by John Chris Felusi on Beanie and, on Beanie and Cecil and, I, and the show only lasted five episodes so I had to find a quick I mean see I moved out to California all the way from Texas, and I, you know, I, I expected the show to last a little bit longer than that, so I had to scramble for the next gig. And fortunately, I had connections uh, with a group called Appetunes, and the, they had several professionals in that group who knew my work of um, in that particular publication. It's called a Amateur Press Association. Are you familiar with those Appas? 
I'm trying to think if somebody's mentioned it to me. I don't know if, if I'm super familiar with it. I, it sounds kind of familiar, but... <laughs> well, it, it, an amateur press association is people with... Um, it's a closed circulation group. You know, only you know certain members, certain people can join them. You know, you can apply and they accept you. And then um, every other month you send in a contribution... You know, say if there's 30 members, you send in uh, 30 copies of your own little publication to the central mailer, who at the time was Jerry Beck. And he would staple it all together and mail them out, mail copies out to all the members. So we, in this case, Appetunes is a, an amateur press association devoted to cartoons. That's what it was all about. And so there are several professionals in the group. You know, you had um, Jim Corcus, Jerry Beck, at the time was Nancy Beeman, Mark Mayerson, and Mark was working on a show called Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. Oh, wow. Okay, that's funny. We actually, uh, another show I like to listen to called Techno Retro Dads just did a feature on Captain Power, So, which that brought back a lot of memories for that because I remember watching that show and I actually had, uh, from a garage sale, I actually had one of the little toys that interacted with the TV, the little uh, XT7 jet. I've been hearing that they might be able to relaunch that series too. Well, they've been trying to do that, uh, but I haven't heard anything new on that front for the past two or three years, but... They're, yep. they're they're trying to start something called Phoenix Rising, mm-hmm. and so uh, but I haven't heard any more about it. Um, I, I guess it's on hold for the time being. But Mark uh, actually animated uh, Blastar and Sauron. Oh, cool! You know, and he's right now he's uh, teaching up at Sheridan College up in Toronto, and he has his own blog, and uh, he's a brilliant writer. And um, you should check out his blog. He's, he's got some very insightful commentary. Uh, but at the time, in 1988, Nancy Beeman had read some scripts that I had put into Appetunes, and she uh, recommended me to Gerhard Hahn in Berlin. And I, you know, he read the script, and he said, well, he hired me on that, the basis of the writing to actually write a story Bible and several episodes of a proposed series over there. Um, Gerard Hahn, his production company is called uh, Hahn Film, H-A-H-N Film. Uh, And so so he actually liked what I wrote on the Story Bible. And at that time, there was no internet. I mean, he was just beginning. And so I had to fax the material over to him for his approval. And he liked the Bible, the Story Bible enough to actually hire me to write several episodes of that series. So I was flown over to Berlin, and this was at the time before the wall came down. There was still an East mm. Germany and a West Germany, and Berlin was in the middle of East Germany. So I actually worked behind the Iron Curtain for him. And then once wow. that uh, assignment was over with, I came back, and I uh, applied to work at uh, Sullivan Blue, as in mm. Blue. Yeah, and that was in Burbank. So I uh, took the test, and I was hired as an in-between uh, animator. As an, and I progressed to becoming an assistant. And so I would keep meeting those people, and started networking. <laughs> and you know, I learned my craft. 
you know, how to do classical animation. Yeah. Think, and so I worked on um, Rocket Doodle. That was the first one. Yeah. And I troll in Central Park, Febolina, and then we had a special projects unit that did the Hanna-Barbera ride at, um, at MCA Universal in Florida. You remember that? Huh. Do you remember that ride? I, well, I've never been to Universal in Florida. I didn't even realize there was a Hanna-Barbera ride. Oh, what, what was it about? What was going on with it? It, it was like a widescreen, you know, interactive presentation. The um, What people would do is they would get into these motion simulators, kind of like the uh, Star Speeders at Disneyland mm-hmm. for Star Yeah. Well, we did a ride like that, only it was animated uh, in 2D at the time traditional animation in the plot mm-hmm. was that Dick Dastardly kidnapped Elroy Jetson. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the Jetson family would get in their little coop, their, their space coop, and uh, chase Dick Dastardly through several different lands that Hanna-Barbera specialized in. They would go through these time warps. And, oh, my goodness. And so we're taking, we're taking the point of view of the Jetson family Going after Dick Dastardly, you know, oh, you know cool. Elroy El would jump out to try to escape Dick Dastardly, and he'd be snatched back into Dick Dastardly's flyer, and <laughs> would fly through Bedrock first. We go through the Time Warp, we go through um, Bedrock, and go down the streets, and we dodge Mastodons, and you know, we'd be chasing Fred Flintstone and and Barney in their car, and. And Fred would go, step on it, barn! You know, <laughs> and we'd be dodging, you know, we'd be going left and right, you know, the motion simulator would mm-hmm. move the audience around, and then we'd go through another time warp and hit, um, go through this spooky forest, and then there's a haunted house that appears, and lo and behold, there's the mystery machine with Scooby-Doo in the game. Awesome. So we would fly through the Haunted Mansion chasing everybody. You know, Shaggy would be there, zoinks. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. and we'd fly through that, go through another time warp, and uh, then we'd be in the future. And we'd be going through the sky cities um, of the Jetsons. You know, cool. All these sky <laughs> platforms, all these spaceships dodging them around and uh, finally, um, the Jetsons managed to save Elroy, and um, Dick Dastardly is caught, and he goes drat, drat, and double drat. <laughs> Mutley there. Oh, yeah. And then, and then <laughs> we'd slow down there at the end of the um, ramp. There's this, um, oh, what do you call it? The, these balloon, these crash balloons that would puff out. And um, Yogi Bear is there to, to, you know, say goodbye. You know, he 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 bounce out, and that's the end of the uh, show. So that was, oh so man, we provided the animation on that, and I think Bill Croyer's company provided the uh, computer generated uh, backgrounds. So, oh, cool! You know, computer generated animation was in its infancy at the time, but yeah, it was it was credible for very simplified backgrounds. Oh, but this ride doesn't exist anymore. I don't think it does, but I think you can view the um, the animation at uh, on YouTube. 
Well, there's some. I'm gonna have to put a search in for that. I gotta watch that. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> That's like taking a ride through my childhood. <laughs> Let's take a ride at a Disney park. Let's take a ride right now. Oh, oh. Try it now, Yogi. Okay, folks, hold on tight. Say, Yogi, what's our power source? Hydro biped antimatter? Nope. A big old rubber band, boo boo buddy. Oh! Rat do gooders on our tail. Yogi, no! We're coming, Elroy, little buddy. <laughs> Rat Mutley, this is all your fault. <laughs>
John Colley hired me to work on Garfield and Friends. He knew you know, the caliber of my work, and so that's where my animation career started. That's it. So, what else you know? well, with so with storyboarding, uh, I did see a presentation once by one of the storyboard artists for Phineas and Ferb, and they were talking about they actually did a lot of their writing with storyboards. So, did you actually get the experience when you're doing storyboarding that you got to come up with some of the story uh, as you were creating the storyboards, or were they pre-written? Well, it depends upon the show that you work on. Some shows you have to uh, follow the script. You know, just like you would in live action, they give you scripts, and the storyboard artist visualizes that, and that's what I would do on Garfield and uh, later on Itsy Bitsy Spider and The Simpsons. I worked uh, four seasons on The Simpsons. But on a show called uh, Larry Boy... <gasps> Yay! Uh, yeah, that was done... Not the live-action version, but there was a 2D animated version. Oh, yes. I have those on DVD as well. Yeah, well, I was the uh, I was involved with that, and I uh, storyboarded. You know, I was given a, a premise, a story premise, and then I would, you know, storyboard the story out without a script. You know, I would do my own little outline and then um, do a 15-minute show or a little less than that, uh, based on that premise. So yeah, I, I pretty much wrote those two episodes, and I've got a, co a a writing credit for that. Oh, cool. So yeah, so there's certain. It depends on the series, you know, if if it's creator driven and if it's the creator is an artist, usually they will um, assign storyboard people that they know to actually uh, storyboard out the story without a script. As a matter of fact, that's how um, the, 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 uh, in the Golden Age of Animation, the Looney Tunes were done. They did the story by storyboards. Hmm. You know, they and the first three seasons of the Flintstones. You know, those were all done by storyboard guys. But what happened was, during that time, Hanna-Barbera was exploding in terms of uh, the number of TV shows they were doing. So they started, you know, they, they used up the pool of available storyboard writers, or artists, I should say, and they started having to hire live-action people and people who uh, weren't so familiar with um, visualizing the story. So the people who created Scooby-Doo were actually film editors, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But then they would ultimately, and that was um, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, mm -hmm. and they formed their own studio, um, you know, Ruby Spears, and they were responsible for Fang Face and, um, um, oh, uh, a show called, um, well, it was based on, it was loosely based on Land Before Time, I uh, forgot, it was called Dink the Little Dinosaur. Oh, I remember that one vaguely. Yeah. Dink was basically an echo of Littlefoot from the land before yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> So, yeah. So anyway, so that's, you know, the scripts, it, it depends. You know, if it's a writer-driven show, then you do it with scripts. If it's an artist-driven show, then it's usually done by storyboards. But in each case, storyboard artists are at work. You know, the storyboard artist interprets what the writer said, puts down on the script 
and is uh, their work is approved by the director. That's how it works. Okay. So before we forget to tell everybody, so the book is called The Animated Voice, and this is a first volume. And yes. if you go to W.R. Miller online, you'll find some links, which it's for sale on Amazon. I figured, kind of like the other books. So yes. everybody can go and pick up a copy of that, which that's definitely on my list. I'm going to have too many books to read again, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely want to talk into that. But I definitely want to turn a corner and talk about some Star Wars because there was definitely some Star Wars news happening this week. And you had mentioned you actually got to go to the press event for Star Wars Resistance this week. So what all can you tell us about that that you're allowed to say? Well, um, I can tell about talk about the experience. Um, basically, I was in, I'm, I'm, let me let me see. I was invited there um, to represent Animation Scoop, which is Jerry Beck's website devoted to animation. So my coverage will begin on you know starting Monday on his website. So you know tune in there and you can see my report. But uh, we were invited to the Disney Channel building in Burbank, and they had the uh, had the three executive producers there, and uh, several of the cast, and most of the cast um, I noticed had, were on camera actors as opposed to um, voiceover specialists. But the uh, we got to interview them all in uh, roundtable discussions. And um, some of those will appear in a future volume of the Animated Voice. Oh, cool. But what was interesting was that all the actors were very enthusiastic about the work. <laughs> you know, it had actually grown up on Star Wars. Yeah. And uh, one of them, the, who voices, uh, well, actually, a couple of them at least, they were um, inspired by the original trilogy and they grew up wanting to be an actor um you know because of that they were inspired and they and so they were flattered when they actually succeeded in winning the audition and uh playing the character yeah that would be like the ultimate fulfilled fantasy like oh hey i love star wars i'd love to be in something like that and the next thing you know i am in star wars yeah, and they'll be getting um, action figures of themselves. Oh, yeah, that's one of those life goals, <laughs> to have an action figure made of me. I don't know who would want to play with a figure of me, though, other than me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one character, uh, his name is Hype Fazon, or Fazon, and um, that role apparently seems to have been written for him by Dave Filoni, even before Star Wars Rebels. Wow. Uh, yeah. Fellow by the name of um, Donald Faison um, did a YouTube uh, animated short uh, called Black Stormtrooper. <gasps> oh, I think I remember seeing that. Yeah. So Dave Filoni saw that, and they met at a um, at a premiere. I believe it was The Force Awakens, and uh, he, uh, you know, Dave Filoni says he doesn't call. Uh, Don by name, he just says, "Oh, black stormtrooper." <laughs> Don goes, "Oh, cool! You, you know me from that." And so, at that time, David told him, "You know, I've, I'm, I'm going to get you in mind for a Star Wars show, not in the immediate future, but sometime." And you know, Don said, "Well, okay." And 
uh, Star Wars Rebels is announced, but he isn't chosen for that. He says, well, okay. And then finally, he gets the word that uh, about Star Wars uh, Resistance, and he discovers that this character is named after him. Cool. His name is Donald Faison, but... Uh, but his character's name is Hype Faison. That <laughs> correctly, but um, yeah, so he's very flattered, and the character runs this. Um, well, is a pilot, but he also runs this platform on this water planet, and um, this platform is uh, is referred to kind of like a, a truck stop or a refueling depot for. Uh, the outer rim and so there's all kinds of it does have a cantina type place of course you know all kinds of wild and wacky aliens (laughs) and this place called the the platform is called the colossus and they also run uh races there you know with their spaceships spaceships you know fly through these rings trying to see who's the fastest and who's the best oh cool (laughs) so it's it's kind of like um, you know pod racing on Tatooine, except this is you know spaceship racing on a water planet. Now, for, now the resistance knows that there's a an operative there uh, for the um, the first order, and this takes pl- the story takes place six months before the Force Awakens. Mm. They do not know about. The Star Killer, <laughs> but they know that um, the First Order is up to something. So they, um, so Poe Dameron uh, recruits this eager young fighter pilot. Um, his, let's see, his name is Kaz. They, he goes by the name Kaz. Um, that's the easiest way to remember. You, you see, with Star Wars Resistance, we have to learn this whole new uh, vocabulary of names and places. <laughs> so everybody's going to be on a learning curve here. Yeah. <laughs> but Kaz, um, you know, he's a very likable, eager guy. He's kind of clumsy, um, but eager to please. And he wants to prove his worth to his father. And uh, we don't know who his father is. Uh, he's he's a high-ranking official somewhere in the new republic mm. but we don't know, we don't know who it is not yet so he wants to prove himself uh, to his father and to the resistance and so he volunteers to be on this mission so he and bb8 go to the colossus with the intent of uh, finding out who this first order operative is and um so he he doesn't get off to a good start let me put it that way <laughs> So, but he's a very likable fellow. Um, the guy who plays him is his name is Christopher Sean. And so um, they're you know they're both Asian American, and so that's a sign that Disney wants you know some diversity mm-hmm. in the Star Wars universe. You know this is the first Asian slash American lead in a series, you know in a Star Wars series. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So he's taking advantage of that. He's delighted. And so um, he does a very good job um, with the character. You know, very, and, you know, he, he scored very well with focus groups, apparently, you know, with kids watching the opening episodes. Kaz may become a very popular character. 
Well, let's hope so. Yeah. So, so he's going. But the thing is, Kaz boasts, you know, you know, that he's a he's a very good pilot. He, he's probably the best pilot there, and that doesn't sit well with the other pilots, you know, because rumors <laughs> spread, you know, gossip and all, and it will reach the ears of Hype Faison, you know, who is um, who pretty much runs the operation. So. There's a confrontation between the two that will be coming up later. So um, anyway, that's how you know Star Wars Resistance begins. And, and does that premiere uh, in October? October seventh on the Disney Channel at um, at a late hour, actually at ten o'clock. Um, I think. Let me see. I'm checking up, checking these papers here. Ten o'clock uh, Eastern Time. So, wow, that is going to be late. Well, it'll be 9 o'clock at least here, so it won't be as bad as the East Coast. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there are two episodes. It's called The Recruit. Okay, I am going to make sure I set my DVR for that while I'm thinking about it, because <laughs> I do not want to miss that. Uh, so... So now we know some more stuff about that, but some other news that happened this week, and you actually got a chance to meet with Gary Kurtz while you were working on your uh, Star Wars Historical Sourcebook, and uh, he wrote a foreword for the book, didn't he? That's right. Um, thanks to Craig Miller, who um, worked with Gary. Uh, he was you know, a publicist for... Well, he started the original Star Wars fan club, and he worked with Gary Kurtz as a publicist, uh, promoting the Empire Strikes Back, plus doing other, you know, work like, um, you know, he produced the segments with R2-D2 and C-3PO on Sesame Street, and, you know, so Craig's been around, and uh, he, uh, through him, he connected me with Gary Kurtz in London. Hmm. You know, he told Gary about me, my what my project was, and so Gary agreed to be interviewed for the Star Wars Historical Source book. And then after the interview, I um, asked if he might be interested in writing a foreword to me. And he did. And that foreword is, he mentions, he says, any true Star Wars fan or scholar must have this work in their collection. So I was really privileged that the producers Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back and the Dark Crystal yeah. were Give me that recommendation. I'm extremely honored by that. But, uh, you know, he, uh, his health was failing. Yeah. And he, um, he, I didn't know why, but, it, you know, it's the pre according to the press, it was because uh, he had cancer at the time. Yeah. He was fighting cancer. So um, I was really fortunate to speak with him at the time that I did. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely that makes your book even more of an item to really get. So you have those those final few words, you know. Well, not absolute well, final, but you know, having that that something. Well, it's his comments will be spread throughout the, the uh, source book series. Yeah, volume one covers seventy one to seventy six. So I've got him commenting there, and in volume two, which covers the um, first half of seventy seven. And then, of course, during his time on The Empire Strikes Back. So I've got some quotes from him on that. 
Yeah, and uh, even looking up his all of his credits as being a producer, uh, even going back with George Lucas as far as American Graffiti, uh, was a, he was a co-producer. Uh, Disney fans will be delighted to find out, I guess, that uh, he was an executive producer for that Return to Oz movie, which I haven't seen because everybody tells me it's it's kind of terrifying for a Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It was, it was pretty hard-edged. Uh, I noticed that uh, Brad Bird on Twitter uh, said that uh, Gary produced the two best Star Wars movies, meaning Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, so... He's got that commendation from Brad Bird. Yeah. And uh, Disney fans will, of course, know Brad Bird from The Incredibles and even The Iron Giant, which, I mean, uh, yeah, Brad Bird's just awesome. Also, uh, oh, not uh, Remy the Rap. No, Ratatouille. There we go. <laughs> yeah, Ratatouille. Yes. So Brad Bird's yeah, actually, got good stuff. Yeah, I actually interviewed him uh, on The Iron Giant and for Ratatouille. Oh, are those going to be coming out in a book anytime soon? Well, if I decide to do an, an animated director's book, yeah, that's that's quite possible. Uh, the Ratatouille interview was in Starlog, and the Iron Giant um, was for Animation World magazine, which is online. Okay, uh, is Starlog still collected online anywhere by any chance? You can actually download or read the entire print run of Starlog. Oh my goodness. Well, there's something you can have on your uh, your tablet to go through on a long airport ride, or <laughs> so they read Starlog. Yeah. yeah, just it should be easy to find. You know, <laughs> yeah, all 300 plus is- issues, and that includes um, an interview I had with Dave Filoni in um, one of the last issues when he was talking about Star Wars: The Clone Wars. Hmm. The interesting thing is that, speaking of, it's it's not Star Wars Resistance, but I did see something where he's got a credit for something called Resistance that he did. Yeah, he, he, he created the show. Huh. He created but he's not as hands-on with it as um, he was with Rebels and Clone Wars. No, these three, these three new um, executive producers are in charge. You know, I'll name them. Uh, Athena Portillo, uh, she was involved also with Rebels. Brandon Alman, uh, who is also uh, the head writer. And Justin Ridge, who's also the supervising director. Very nice people. They're, they're very enthusiastic about uh, Star Wars Resistance. Yeah, well, you have to be. If it's Star Wars, you, if you're not excited that you're making a Star Wars thing, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and it's all canon. Yeah. Know. They actually have um, the voices of uh, Poe Dameron and Captain Phasma. Uh, Anthony Daniels is in the first episode. Yay. You don't see him, but you do hear him. You do hear C-3PO. Cool. And so, and they, you know, the producers say, you know, there's all kinds of surprises coming up. Oh, and I hope they do a lot more with Captain Phasma than what the films have done with her, because you know when when we felt like we had such a build up for her before the Force Awakens came out that oh she was going to be this very scary, very tough you know stormtrooper commander, and we kind of got this eh, you know lackadaisical. It's like well there's the character, da da there she is. But I, I think that with Resistance, if they include her a lot more, they can make her more of a uh, a villain, a threat. Than I think what they had the opportunity to do before. So here's well, hoping. We'll see. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in this series, at least so far, we're not dealing at all with the Force. We, we don't deal anything with the Skywalker family. Mm. It's, it's, you know, it's just, well, as uh, Bobby Moynihan uh, would put it, uh, this is a blue-collar show. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, these are pilots and people who drink beer at the bar and that kind of thing. You know, they're mechanics in the, in the cast. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but so, you know, our hero, um, Kaz, if he faces Captain Phasma, yeah, she's going to be a big threat to him. Yeah, and see, that's what they really need. Really build that character up. Right. Yeah. And, and of course, it makes sense the Force wouldn't be a, be a big thing because I guess the Force is asleep because it hasn't awakened yet. <laughs> well, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Much. However, that said, um, this show will overlap um, The Force Awakens. Oh, good. So we get a little bit of the side stories. Yeah. Oh, that, oh man, I, that's going to be an interesting episode with uh, Kaz having a father who's part of the New Republic. Uh, when the incident happens where uh, the New Republic is destroyed, that's going to have a profound impact on the character. Yeah, pretty much. So pretty much, Ch chances are his father will die mm -hmm. in the um, Star Killer burst there. Yeah, and this also gives an opportunity to maybe we get to see a little bit more about the newer Republic uh, and get a little bit more inside. And uh, I, I feel that's almost one of the things that was lacking in the Force Awakens is that well, the only bit of finding out what the New Republic was about was getting one shot of everybody out on the balcony looking to see their doom coming at them and. Uh, we didn't get enough yeah. to, to be able to care about those characters to have that really impact us other than, oh, dude, they just destroyed the Republic. But I would like to have maybe known some characters there so when I see something like that happen, I can have that, you know, that impact of like, oh, that's awful. And instead of just like, ooh, they destroyed a lot of planets. Yeah. Right. Because Alderaan, we felt it through Leia when that was destroyed. And then we, even we have that scene up there with Ben Kenobi just feeling, you know, suddenly all these voices cried out in terror were suddenly silenced. It, it still managed to give us an impact. But Force Awakens, it's like the only impact we saw is like, wow, they destroyed a lot of planets at once. But we didn't we weren't attached to it. Right. Well, what can I say? <laughs> yeah. So the resistance, I feel like they've they've got some second chance to uh, fix a few things that maybe were a little lacking. So I want to see Captain Phasma as a complete threat. I want to see the inner workings of the New Republic and get to know some characters that are part of the New Republic. Maybe get to see what what Leo Organa is doing within the New Republic. And uh, so there's there's so many things that I would love to be able to see that I hope we're going to get involved with with this series. Well, they'll say, they would say to you, watch the show. <laughs> <laughs> and I plan to. I'm definitely going to check this out. Uh, and definitely, we just want to say a big thank you and a big tribute to Gary Kurtz for all the work that he did. He really did form our childhood for us. Uh, a lot of us, when we were growing up, especially the Dark Crystal, I used to watch that thing like every day during the summer. So he's had his hands in a lot of my favorite stuff and even a lot of stuff that I'm like, what in the world is that? Like a 2016 executive producer, Gangster Kittens, <laughs> which has yeah, nothing no. to do with cats when I looked it up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he's a very nice man. When we, when we talked on the phone, um, he was very, you know, accommodating and, um, you know, 
I wish I could have known him personally. You know, he's just a very nice man. Yeah, and we definitely owe him a lot. But uh, once again, thank you for coming back on the show to tell us about some more of your experience and even more books that uh, we can enjoy. The animator's voice or animated voice, which I know me, myself, and I think probably a lot of my listeners, we're definitely interested in voice actors because voice actors never seem to get enough credit. But they're the people that have entertained us throughout most of our lives from behind the scenes, whether they get enough credit or not. They're, they're there, and they definitely have an impact on us. So this is a great book. I'm excited to be able to take a look at this. I appreciate it. And just to give you a preview of the next volume, uh, I interviewed the cast, the male cast of Dragon Ball Super. Ah! Yeah, I think the only Dragon Ball I ever watched was enough to watch them stare at each other and tell, him, tell each other how much they're going to pulverize each other for about <laughs> ten minutes. <laughs> Well, Dragon Ball Super is a lot faster paced than that. Oh, good. Yes, because their fights are certainly fast. They go there just like a bunch of flying fists, you know, so you'd have to pick up the pace. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're not as pro- the battles are not as prolonged as they were in Dragon Ball Z. Oh, good. <laughs> Dragon Ball Super, it has a lot more character development, and, uh, you know, even the actors admit that. <laughs> I don't know more of these characters. Yeah, they'll definitely have a good fan base waiting for that one because there's there's some people who are just diehard about Dragon Ball. Absolutely. All righty. But once again, big thanks for coming on the show again. This is always fun. Thank you, Jeremy. May the force be with you. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. We invite you back next week for more fun and adventure. Until then, remember to keep a pixie in your pocket. It's that young at heart, positive attitude that you can share with others. And remember to visit our website at NeverlandPodcast.com. There you can find links to our news page, our shop, our contact page, where you can easily send an email to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. You can also find our Neverlanders page, where you can find out how to become an official Lost Boy or Pixie, because girls are too clever to get lost. Become a real Neverlander! Please feel free to leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at NeverlandPCast. And like our Neverland Podcast fan page on Facebook. We also have a group on Facebook for you to join. We also appreciate your support to keep the Neverland Podcast up and running. Visit Patreon.com slash NeverlandPodcast to donate to Keeping the Pixie Dust Alive. Copyright content featured on the Neverland Podcast is copyright of their respective creators and used under fair use license. All original content is copyright of Blue Band Productions and a very special thanks to Yeehaw Bob Jackson at yeehawbob.com for our new ending music. God bless! Yeah! Hello everybody, this is Yeehaw Bob Jackson. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, it's true. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.